2 Corinthians 5. Let's stand for the reading of God's word tonight. Verse 17 down through verse 21. It says there, this is where we left off last week. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And to finish up the Bible study, the title of it is Reconciliation Requires Humility. Let's pray. Lord, tonight would you help us as we continue through this study and look at uh, some truths beyond reconciliation. And Lord, what ought to happen past reconciliation. And God, um, speak to us tonight in a special way. And Lord, may we be dedicated and committed to reconciling others who have offended us to ourselves, but Lord, also reconciling sinners to a, a saving Christ and showing uh, how that Jesus died for them so that they could be reconciled to God. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, understanding the history of uh, Paul and the church of Corinth is key to understanding the book. If you've gone to church any length of time, you've heard 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 21 preached. We are to be inside of the ministry of reconciliation. But when you understand the context of the writing of the book uh, uh, behind the writing of that passage, boy, it sure makes that so much more powerful. So really quickly, we're going to recap uh, what we covered last week. Part of that recap is going to be the timeline of Paul's interaction with the Corinth church. So we'll put these up one at a time. In AD 50, uh, AD 50, 50 years after Christ, uh, Paul plants the church of Corinth. Paul plants the church of Corinth. You can go back to Acts chapter 18 and see that on his second missionary journey, he came through Macedonia, landed in the port there of Corinth, and began to lead the pagan to Christ. Most of them that got saved, history tells us, were most likely poorer uh, uh, people, but uh, slowly but surely as the church grew and was established, more rich and well-to-do people began to come into the church as well. And so it was a church of many different economical classes. So Paul planted the church in AD 50. Um, Paul left and went on his way to start other churches in AD 54. Paul writes the book of First Corinthians. So what happened that caused Paul to write this letter is that there were people in the church who were doing all kinds of crazy things. And uh, we talked about that in First Corinthians, how that First Corinthians was a very broken church. Heretics had gotten in and started preaching the wrong kind of gospel. People were living in a way that was sensuous and full of uh, lasciviousness and uh, uh, breaking uh, and doing uh, uh, things that, uh, of a sexual nature that did not please the Lord. Their service structure was broken. People were using Christian liberty as an excuse to live however they want and say, well, I'm free in Christ to do what I want. There were all of these problems. And so somebody went to Paul uh, as he's planting the church in Ephesus and said, hey, Paul, all this is going on. And Paul's like, okay. So Paul writes five essays uh, that is compiled into one book in 1 Corinthians, and he strongly reprimands the church. Now, we look at this from a historical standpoint. We look back and see that Paul planted this church, got away from it, and rebuked the church, and we kind of go, okay, well, I mentally understand. The problem is that you, we can forget the emotion of the moment. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in a church uh, of the carnal mindset that this church was and getting a letter like this written? Think about a church in America today that's very carnal in nature. And let's say that uh, some uh, leatherback, uh, 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 snot-slinging, uh, heavy-hitting preacher writes them a letter and just rips them to shreds for all the carnality in the church and mails that to them. They get that in the mail and they open it up. How do you think they're going to take it? Probably not real well. Well, the church of Corinth didn't take it well. 
Not only were they offended, they also dismissed Paul as an apostle. So what did Paul do? Well, uh, notice in AD 54, the church rejects the letter. They rejected the letter. They read it. They scoffed at it. They were offended by it. They pushed it to the side and said, who does Paul think he, think he is telling us how to live? In AD 55, Paul makes his second visit to Corinth. Now, um, AD 55, Paul makes second visit to Corinth. Now, when Paul arrived in Corinth, he was coarse in his letter. He was tough in his letter, but he was um, much nicer in person. He was hard-hitting with his letter, and then he came in and tried to coddle the church and win, woo them and win them back to him. And to be honest with you, that didn't go over real well. In fact, a lot of the people were kind of offended that Paul would be so soft and not be as hard-hitting. So again, AD 55, we can put that on the screen please, AD 55, Paul makes second visit to Corinth. And then the next one there, AD 56, uh, um, Paul writes a potential second letter to Corinth. We did this last week. We're not going to take the time to do it again. But if you turn over to chapter 7 and look at verses 8 through 12, also chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it would seem to indicate that Paul wrote a letter we don't have in our Bibles. And in this letter that he wrote to the church, it was even tougher than 1 Corinthians was. He hammered them even Harder than he did in 1 Corinthians. And so uh, the people got this and probably their sin had broken them up and they began to realize that they were wrong in questioning Paul's apostleship, Paul's authority. They realized they were wrong and for the way they behaved. And so A.D. 56, uh, the church repents of their treatment of Paul. The church repents of the treatment of Paul. And many historians believe that a letter was written back to Paul apologizing for the way they had behaved. So Paul gets this letter, he reads it, he realizes the church is sorry for the way they treated him, he realizes the church is wanting to repent and reconcile with him, the humility is there for reconciliation, and so with that as the backdrop, AD 57, Paul writes our Second Corinthians. This was either the third or the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. You say, well, pastor, why don't we have the other letter or two letters in our Bible? Because God did not inspire Paul to write those. Paul wrote those on his own. These letters, first Corinthians and second Corinthians, God told Paul to pen those. And so we have those in our Bible. Now, with that as the backdrop, chapters 1 through 7 is what we looked at last week. Chapters 1 through 7 covers the reconciliation process. Paul articulated very clearly, hey, you all weren't nice to me. In fact, let's throw uh, the first point from last week up there. Corinth's rejection of Paul. They had rejected him. Why did they reject Paul? Well, they were embarrassed over Paul. They were embarrassed over him. They looked at Paul as this short little guy who had bad vision, who was always getting hurt, who was always uh, getting uh, uh, persecuted, who was always being thrown in prison, uh, who, who was not, by Paul's own admission in chapter 11, verse 6, a very good public speaker. In fact, Paul said, I am rude in my speech, meaning I'm not the best public speaker out there. And so they were embarrassed over Paul. People would come in and say, oh, what's the history of your church? And they say, well, we really don't like to talk about the, the history of our church. Well, why not? Well, um, we were founded in AD 50. Oh, okay. Well, well, who founded you? Well, about that. It was this short little guy named Paul. Oh, the Apostle Paul? Him? You see, we have the context of history. We have uh, uh, the books of Romans all the way through the book of, of Titus that, that we can see, man, Paul was greatly used of God. We have history that shows us three missionary journeys and a fourth one to Rome. We have history to tell us uh, that Paul was a great man of God. But they didn't have the perspective of history to tell them that. In fact, to them, to them, Paul was just this little troublemaker. You see, they didn't have the Internet to see where how many churches Paul had started. They didn't have uh, uh, social media to help them see all of Paul's accomplishments. All they knew was that Paul was getting on their case for their sin. And nobody likes it when someone points out their sin. Nobody likes that. And so they had rejected Paul. They were embarrassed of him. And instead, they had embraced other preachers. Other preachers had come in their pulpit. 
and they were much better eloquent speakers. They dressed more expensive. They weren't being persecuted for their faith. They fit in better with the culture. And they said, ooh, we like that guy. He wears expensive suits. He, uh, he rides an expensive camel, or whatever it was they rode back then. Um, he, uh, he, he stays in nice hotels. He, he, he expects us to pay him a nice love offering. And so they embraced other preachers, and they were embarrassed of Paul. So that was the reason why they needed to reconcile. Number two, last week we looked at Paul's representation of true Christianity. Paul reminded them, hey, listen, uh, true Christianity isn't about wearing nice clothes and, and, and collecting large love offerings and living a, a cush life. In fact, uh, Christian leaders are not con- uh, concerned with elevated status at all. They don't care about their status among the brethren. Christian leaders are instead uh, uh, concentrated on embracing servanthood. It's not about how awesome I am. It's about how awesome he is. It's not about how awesome I look or how great I preach. It's that He is the King of kings and I am His slave. I am His servant. And all of those who come behind Christ are to point up to Christ, not point at themselves. To God be the glory. Great things He hath done. And so Paul was saying to them, these guys that are coming in, these, these, these super apostles, if you will, they might look great. They might talk great. They might be more relatable with the way that you all live your common lives, but that's not Christianity. Christian leaders, true Christianity is represented by embracing servanthood. Letter C, we saw that Christian leaders are cognizant of eternal sanctification and they're more concerned about getting others to be like Jesus than they are getting others to be like themselves. And then we also talked about how that Christian leaders are content with early with earthly suffering. And Paul said, look, I'm more like Christ because I suffer for Christ, than the guys that you look up to. Because they don't suffer, period. You ought, to, you ought to be proud of the man that started your church. Because the man who started your church is like Jesus. In that, in his suffering, he is able to help others. Number three, we looked at Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthians. Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthians. Now, with that as the backdrop, We go back and we look at chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, and we see that Paul is telling them that reconciliation requires humility. It requires humility. Look, Jesus had to humble himself, did he not, before we could be reconciled to God? Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, took upon himself uh, the form of a man, and uh, suffered the death, the death of the cross, right? So Jesus humbled himself. Now, what do we have to do to be saved? We must also humble ourselves. Both parties must humble their hearts before reconciliation can be made for salvation. The good news is Jesus already humbled himself. He's waiting on you. How about, how about our broken relationships with each other? How do I reconcile with a brother who has wronged me? I must humble my heart, and he must humble his heart. And in that moment of humility, where we both bring the humility to each other, reconciliation can be made. Then and only then can reconciliation be made. But we also said about the reconciliation with the Corinthians that it is at the heart of Christianity. You know what we've been commanded to do? We've been commanded to reconcile others to ourselves and others to God. Uh, Sunday night we had the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that before you partake of the Lord's Supper, if you have aught in your heart with your brother or sister, you're to leave your sacrifice, you're to leave the table, and you're to go make amends with them and then come back and do it. Partake. Now, you say, well, Pastor, I've had a run-in with a brother or sister of Christ, and I've tried to fix it, and they won't let me. Does that mean I can't take the Lord's Supper? That's not what that means. If you're humble, and you've tried, and you have to wait for them to come to you, but you better be ready when they come to you with a heart of humility to fix it. Reconciliation requires humility. Now, uh, with that as the backdrop of chapters 1 through 7, 
That whole beginning of the book is an explanation about why the conflict, uh, uh, what the cure is, and how they have misperceived Paul up to this point. Uh, uh, at the end of chapter 7, he begins to transition into a whole other topic beginning in chapter 8. So let's jump in tonight with the outline on the back of your bullets in there, and let's, uh, let's uh, fill in the blanks there. Number four, notice Paul's reminder about Christian benevolence. Paul's reminder about Christian benevolence. Now, we're going to look at this in detail, but um, the, the Jewish church was impoverished. I'll go ahead and give you letter A, the poverty of the Jewish church. The poverty of the Jewish church. You, you might remember back in the day um, when the Jewish church exploded in growth. You remember that? Um, went from 120 to over 100,000. In fact, we looked at it Sunday morning, right? Acts 2, 41 through 47. We talked about the purpose of the church's unity. Remember that? We talked about how they unified around some things. One of the things we said they unified around was benevolence. Remember? We said that they sold of their excess and they gave to the poor and they lifted up each other and they were of one mind and one spirit. You remember that? Well, 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 what had happened to the church of Jerusalem is that the church had been thrashed and persecuted and Punished, And many had left, but there was still a remnant there that was suffering. And Paul would go back in a couple of his missionary journeys and he would visit the church at Jerusalem and he would see starving people. He would see hurt folks. He would see widows with a husband that had been killed for the faith. And Paul was smitten in his spirit. Why would have Paul been smitten in his spirit over the hurting church of Jerusalem? Maybe because he helped persecute it? Maybe? I imagine Paul walking into the church of Jerusalem. He comes in to encourage, and he looks a woman in the eye, and he tries to offer a word of encouragement, and as he looks at her, he has a flashback of arresting that man's husband, which led to his death. Do you think maybe that stung him in the heart a little bit? Maybe that hurt him a little bit? And so what was Paul going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, the poverty of the Jewish church. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul references the poverty of the Jewish church in uh, the first book of 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 16 and verse number 1. Now, he finishes rebuking the church in chapter 15. And then he does what every good Baptist preacher does. He asks for an offering. Amen. So he rebukes, and then he asks for money. All right, look here. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, verse 1, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. He's telling them, you need to give this offering. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, uh, that there be no gathering when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring you uh, bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. So, uh, Paul here is... Uh, uh, Paul here is trying to collect an offering out of this church, out of the church of Corinth, to meet the needs of their J Jewish brothers uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Let her be noticed the participation of the Gentile churches. So this request for an offering was not limited to the church of Corinth. In fact, all the churches Paul was starting, he was going around to them and saying, listen, you all need to give of your abundance to help the people in Jerusalem. You, the Gentiles, need to give back to the Jews that are suffering. Turn over to Romans chapter 15 with me. Let's look at a couple examples of other churches participating in this offering. Romans chapter 15 and verse number 23. Here Paul's talking to the church in the city of Rome, also a church of Gentiles, mostly. Mixed Jew-Gentile congregation, 23. But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, uh, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and uh, to be brought on my way uh, thitherward by you. If first I be somewhat filled with your company, but now I go into Jerusalem 
to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So who's participating here? The churches of Macedonia. That's many churches. And Achaia to, to, to make this contribution to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Verse 27. It hath pleased them verily and their debtors uh, they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of the spiritual thing, their duty is also to minister unto them in a carnal in carnal things. Uh, when therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you in Spain and I am sure when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the uh, sake uh, and for your love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayer to God for me. You read on down there. He also talks to them about maybe contributing. So the churches of Macedonia, it would have been a lot of churches, and uh, the church of Achaia there are contributing to this gift uh, to the poor. Look at Acts chapter 24, verse 17. Acts chapter 24. Back one more book there. The, history, the, uh, the, the background here in Acts 24 is that Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem to take all of the money he's collected from the churches and give to the church of Jerusalem. Now, here's a little unknown fact, at least unknown to me prior to this study. We all know that Paul went back to Jerusalem where he was arrested, right? You all know that. That's pretty common knowledge of those who've been in church for a while. Paul traveled back at the end of his third missionary journey. Instead of going to Antioch like he did all the other times, he went to Jerusalem and many people told him, Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. And a lot of people debate whether or not it was God's will for him to go. I don't know if it was or not. I'm inclined to think that maybe he shouldn't have gone. I don't know. But he went. He was arrested. He, he was almost killed. And then from there, uh, after a series of going to several different court cases, he landed in Rome where eventually he'd be killed. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Well, the biggest reason was he was taking this offering he had collected back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Whereunto certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither were multitude nor with tumult. The reason why he got arrested is he was taking this large offering he had collected back. So back to the church of Corinth, in the end of 1 Corinthians, he said, listen, I'm collecting this money for the Jews. You all need to participate. We see that many of the other churches uh, uh, did. Let her see the passiveness of the Corinth church, the passiveness of the Corinth church. Now, Paul tells them, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. Oh, by the way. Start collecting money to give to the church in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem. And then Paul shows up for a visit. They reject him. Paul writes an even more scathing second letter. They repent. Now it's time to come, by, come around and collect the offering. But guess what? They weren't saving any money. Now, why weren't they saving money? The reason why they weren't saving money is because they were mad at Paul. They were mad at Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and Paul's going to remind them that they didn't do their part. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit or to consider of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So the other churches of Macedonia, Corinth was in Macedonia, the region of Macedonia. The other churches participated in this offering. You didn't participate. Look at verse 2. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their, who's there? The other churches of Macedonia. The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministry of the saints. And this they, the other churches of Macedonia, did, not as we hoped, but first gave uh, uh, their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would uh, uh, also finish in you the same grace also. So what he's saying here is, hey, all the other churches have given, you all have given. Now, what's the practical application here? All right. Uh, White Oak Baptist Church, you are a giving church. A lot of churches our size, uh, about our size, give less than we do. Now, a couple of disclaimers on that. We do live in an area where people make more money than other areas of the country. And so our giving's probably on par with that. But nonetheless, White Oak Baptist Church, you give. As a whole, you give. 
However, not all of you give. Not all of you give. You say, Pastor, do you know if I give or not? I do not know if you give. It might be that the tithing members of White Oak Baptist Church are all in the room right now. It might be that every one of you faithfully give. I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. About 20% of the church does about 80% of the giving. Now, you are missing out on a blessing. If you're part of the 20% to give, thank you. The Lord thanks you. Uh, you're doing your part to help move the gospel forward. You're moving your, doing your part so that this church can be a lighthouse in the area. But don't be passive and miss out on the blessing of God. Number four, notice the power of Christ's sacrifice. The power of Christ's sacrifice. Now, Paul is going to pivot here. Paul is going to pivot here. He's just rebuked them for not doing their part to give to this work in Jerusalem. And now he's going to give them the gospel in financial terms. How many of you speak in financial terms well? All right. Uh, someone starts talking. Any accountants in the room? Any accountants in the room? If you're an accountant, then you know financial terms. Paul is going to begin to speak. How many of you here are the one that runs the checkbook at your house? Would you raise your hand if you run the checkbook in your house? Then I hope you understand some financial terms. All right. How many of you here are completely clueless as to what's going on with the money in your house? You better not raise your hand both times. <laughs> All right. I run the money. I don't know what's going on. All right. Um, that's not good. Paul is now going to give them the gospel in financial terms, to show them the power of Christ's sacrifice. This is great. This is, if this is all you get out of church tonight, this is really rich. Look at verse 7. Therefore, all right, that means built on the thought of you all not giving to the offering. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and in knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also, what grace? The grace of giving. Financial giving. So the church is praised for what? All right? They're praised for faith, for utterance or preaching, for their knowledge of, of truth, for their diligence, uh, in, probably in service, and for loving Paul. They're praised there, but they're lacking in the giving aspect. That grace also. Look at verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove sincerity of your love. Okay, right here. If you want to prove you love Jesus, what's Paul saying? Put your money where your mouth is. Look at verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through the, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, uh, 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 that ye through his poverty might be rich. So here's God up here. He's rich. He's living in heaven. God's son, Jesus. Here you are down here poor. You've got nothing. You're spiritually bankrupt. And he that was rich made himself poor so that in his poverty you could be made rich. You see that? Through, though he left his riches to become poor so that you in your poverty could be made rich. Aren't you glad that the king of glory who had everything financially to offer left all of it behind, became a peasant, walked this earth as a homeless man, was nailed up on a cross and risen from the dead so that you could escape, escape hell and live in heaven in his riches forever. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? Boy, I sure am. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. If it's good enough for the king of kings to do, don't you think it's good enough for you to do? Don't you think that if you give monetarily to the Lord, as he's commanded, and even above, and even above, don't you believe that God can make others rich through you? You know, almost every week we stand up here and we read a missionary letter. And in that missionary letter, there's an account of somebody being saved. What if White Oak Baptist Church didn't support the 60 missionaries we support? What if every other church in America dried up their support? You know what? All those people getting saved who were poor would not be made rich in the Lord. How about every gospel tract that's printed at White Oak Baptist Church? 
How about every Sunday school lesson that's taught? How about every sermon that's preached where somebody raises their hand and says, I need to be saved. And the hundreds of people that have been saved through the ministry of this church. And the only way that was made possible is through the giving of the people of the Lord. We see here the power, the power of Christ's sacrifice. And when you're willing to open up your pocketbook and you're willing to sacrifice for the Lord in this area, God turns around and He blesses that mightily. Notice number uh, letter E there, number letter E, uh, the promise to a giving Christian. The promise to a giving Christian. So Paul says to them, listen, your Savior gave everything so that you could be made rich. You need to contribute in giving uh, of this the way the other churches of Macedonia have. Listen, these other churches in Macedonia, they're poor, they're impoverished, they reached in deep and they gave. And God's going to bless them for that. You need to get in on the blessing. Now, I'm here tonight to tell you that there have been times where I've looked at the checkbook ledger or the bank account statement or the bank account balance on the screen in the app of my phone. All right, whichever one you want to run with. I've looked at all those in my marriage. And I've looked at the bills, and I had just enough to pay the bills without tithing. And I've had a decision to make. Can I tell you that every time I've gone ahead and cut the check and I've given the Lord His, every bill's ever gotten paid. God supplies. Every time. Every time. Funny enough, um, there have been multiple times in my life where I have given and I have not had it to give. And I've gotten home from church. And I've reached into my suit coat pocket. And there's been a $50 bill or a $100 bill sitting in there. And all I know is some good Christian that I don't know walked by and slipped some money in my pocket. Or I've gotten a check in the mail. I remember one time um, uh, we were just, we, were, we had just been married uh, maybe a year and a half. I think Angela was pregnant with Matthew at the time. And um, I was a Christian school teacher. And if you don't think about Christian school teachers, they don't make anything. We were poorer than poor. I think together, we were both working full-time jobs. And I think together, we were bringing in like 28000 a year. We just didn't have any money. And so we had our expenses all ledger sheeted out, balanced out, and we had our income balanced out. And I think that if we never ate out and we just drank water, we had like like seven bucks left over every month. That was it, all right, after paying all the bills. And um, there was one month where the, you know, the car broke down and the electric bill was high and, you know, Angela left the lights on or something. I don't know. Um, no, it's probably my fault. She's always turning off the lights behind me. It's kind of reversed in our house. Uh, but, um, you know, our bills were wacky. Things happened. And I didn't know how we were going to pay it. I just didn't have any idea. And all of a sudden one day, I got a check in the mail. And it was from the job I'd worked through college. They never told me. But they were setting up retirement for me at that job. And I got a check for like $1,800 in the mail. I didn't even know I had that money. And I was like, I'm not retiring for 60 years. Yes, I can use this right now. So um, uh, that got us by. You know what God did? He waited for the perfect time to drop that in our lap. The perfect time to drop that in our lap. You stay faithful to God, and God will bless you. Let's look at this. The promise to a giving Christian. Look at chapter 9, verse number 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly, chapter 9, verse 6, shall also reap, shall reap also sparingly. For he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Look here. For God loveth a cheerful giver. God loveth a, a cheerful giver. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As is written, He hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to the poor. His righteous remaineth forever. What's verse 6 say? If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. 
You say, Pastor, if I put my entire paycheck in the offering plate, does that mean God's going to multiply it by ten and allow me to win some mini, mini lottery? No. No. I'm not here telling you to put your entire paycheck in the offering plate. I've known Baptist pastors to do it. I'm not telling you to do that. Amen? Aren't you thankful? Say, thank you, Pastor. Um, I remember when I was um, 12 years old, we had some guy come in, and he did a missions conference. And, I mean, the guy was a real good used car salesman. He got up, and, I mean, he, was, he may have even been preaching out of this passage. And he's telling all these stories. Yeah, one time I put a $50 bill on the plate, and God sent me a check for $500. And he's telling all these stories. I'm, 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 you know, I'm a 12-year-old boy. My eyes are like, whoa. The offering plate is the world's best investment. So for my birthday, I got like 20 bucks. And so I put that $20 bill on the plate. And he kept saying, if you have faith, you'll get it back. You've got to have faith. And so, man, every night I got down on my knees and I'm like, Lord, I put that $20 bill on the plate. I'm expecting at least $200 back. Don't look at me that way. Some of you did that last week. So I remember I got to camp that summer and I'm walking around and I'm like, it's been six months. God, where is my money? Where's my money? And so I sat down with my dad and I said, I don't, I don't understand this. And he laughed at me the way you're laughing at me. He said, you know, Richard, you put that $20 bill in the plate with the wrong motive. One, he said, two, if you so bountifully giving what you have, God may pay you back. By keeping you safe, keeping you out of a car accident. He may pay you back by blessing your health and allowing that to excel. He may pay you back in a multitude of ways. He'll improve your quality of life. I'm not the type of pastor that says if you give X percent more to the Lord, then, then God's going to see your, your investments grow and you know, you're going to end up with a nicer car or you're going to end up in a bigger house. Listen, uh, some of those things may happen and God may bless you financially and I can't say that He won't, but that ought not be why we give. We give uh, uh, bountifully and God will bless our lives bountifully. You say, Pastor, what financial guarantee can you make if I give to the Lord? I'll make this guarantee to you that if you'll give to the Lord what he's called and asked for you to give, God will always make sure that your bills are paid every time, every time. Now you say, well, that means I can go buy a, a Porsche on loan and I'll have that money. No, no, no. If you if you give the money to the Lord, he will make sure that your needs are met faithfully. Amen. Paul said to the church here, listen, you all are being tightwads with your money. It might be because you've had a grudge against me. Don't be a tightwad. Open up the pocketbook and give. What is chapters 8 and 9, eight and nine about? Chapters 8 and 9 have to deal with uh, our responsibility of looking after the needs of others. Uh, uh, so Paul's reminder about Christian benevolence. Number five, notice Paul's reestablishment of his apostleship. Paul's reestablishment of his apostleship. Paul did not want to have to continue to address this, but many, many people in the church of Corinth were very skeptical over whether Paul was an apostle. And the reason was because these, these uh, uh, apostles, had, other men had come in, these imposter apostles had come in and had convinced them that Paul was not the real deal. So he goes back chapters 10 and 11 and 12 and reinstates that he is indeed an apostle and these men are imposters and they need to expel them and get rid of them. Letter A, notice Paul's challengers... Their qualifications were shallow. Paul's challengers, their qualifications were shallow. Um, uh, notice below that their belittling of Paul. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 10. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 10. It says, therefore, his letters say they. This is the, uh, the, uh, the other apostles, these super apostles, these super hero apostles, if you will. They're belittling Paul. Again, chapter number 10, verse 10. Uh, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech 
contemptible. For such an one think this, uh, uh, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. So they're belittling Paul. They're saying, hey, this Paul guy, he sure writes a mean letter. He sure writes a mean letter. But when he gets in your presence, he's a little softy. And his speech is deplorable. It is contemptible. It is not enjoyable. They're belittling Paul, these other people. And Paul is calling them out on this. Notice about Paul's challengers, uh, their qualifications were shallow. Notice their boasting of themselves. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 12. It says, therefore, uh, Paul is telling them, for we dare not make, he's saying this is what they're doing, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves uh, by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure or beyond what we ought to, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. He's saying there, these guys that you're following, these guys that have come in and have lied to you about me, these guys that have come in and have challenged uh, my apostleship, they're boasting of themselves, they're comparing themselves to each other, and, and Paul says that's not wise to be that way. Um. You ever look at another Sunday school class and go, well, ours is bigger than theirs. Don't do that. You ever um, look at someone who's been saved about as long as you have and say, well, I'm a better Christian than that guy or than that girl. Don't do that. Don't do that. Hey, um, it's not my goal to be more spiritual than Mark or Jim or John or Rose or Sherry. Or Angela, it's my goal to be as spiritual as God has created me to be and wants me to be. And so, if I am the most spiritual person in the room, which I'm not, but if I were, that doesn't even matter. Because I have a journey that I'm on with the Lord. It is not my job to compare myself uh, uh, to others. It's my job to compare myself with a perfect God and Savior and, and see that He wants me to be like Jesus and see that I fall way short. And so instead of turning around and saying I'm ahead of most people, I can put it and cruise and, and, and just and just sit back and, and enjoy the ride. No, no, no. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. And these super apostles, they were looking at each other and saying, well, we're better than Paul and we're better than that one. And they're boasting of themselves. Do you know what happens when I look at someone else and say, I'm more spiritual than they are? I'm bragging on myself. What a terrible thing to do. It's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's about my desire to want to become like him. Letter A, Paul's challengers. Letter B, notice Paul's credentials. Paul's credentials. His qualifications were spiritual. These other men, their qualifications were shallow. Paul's qualifications were spiritual. What were Paul's qualifications? And, and Paul here, if you read through 2 Corinthians, this part 10 through 12, you get the sense that Paul is very, very irritated that he even has to state what his credentials are. Paul doesn't even want to address this, but he does it. I'll show you his irritation in a minute. What were Paul's credentials? Well, um, he said uh, these men, uh, these challengers that are coming in with their fancy suits and their eloquent speech and, and, and their false doctrines, uh, these guys that are coming in, um, they claim that they have a knowledge of the Bible. He said, you want to talk about knowledge of the Bible? Paul had the whole Torah memorized. Paul was a Pharisee. You really want to try to put yourself up with Paul? Uh, name the book, chapter, and verse. Paul could quote it for you on the spot. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Look at, uh, uh, put that next slide up there for me if you would. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, the next one after that as well. His knowledge of the Bible, he had the whole Torah memorized. Look at chapter 11, verse 22. He said, are they Hebrews? Speaking of this, uh, uh, th- these imposters. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? 
So am I. He said, as a Hebrew, as a as a, a Israelite or a Jew, I have my Bible memorized. He said about them, he said, they claim that they have a knowledge of Jesus. Throw that up there. A knowledge of Jesus. Let's look at Paul's qualifications when it comes to having a knowledge of Jesus. Well, Paul actually spent time with Jesus. He had seen Jesus. And beyond just having seen him being knocked off the horse in that conversation and all that, Paul actually uh, saw Jesus in heaven. Look at chapter uh, 12, verse number 1. Paul saw Jesus in heaven. Look at chapter 12, verse number 1. The Bible says there, um, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ... About 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such and one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether uh, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Uh, how that uh, he was caught up in the paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man uh, to utter. So Paul is saying, you guys claim, you, you false uh, prophets, you false apostles claim that you have a knowledge of Jesus, I've spent time with him, I've been to heaven and I've seen him. Whether it was in a vision or I was actually transported up there, I'm not sure. I've actually been to heaven and seen Jesus. You you still want to compare credentials with me. Uh, Paul uh, said about his knowledge of Jesus, not only have I spent time with Jesus, not only have I seen Jesus in heaven, I have given my entire life to Christ's mission. I have given my entire life to Christ's Mission. He said, my whole life since I've been saved has been going around from church or from city to city and starting church after church. And Paul's credentials were spiritual. They were not carnal. They were not shallow. How about provisions for life? Provisions for life. Paul said, you have these guys coming in and they keep asking you for these large offerings. He said, me, I've sewn tents together. And other churches have given me money of their own volition without me even asking. He said, I've never asked a dime from you. Never. I've never asked you for a penny. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse number 7. He said, have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted? Because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely. I robbed other churches or took money from other churches. Uh, taking wages of them to do you service. I've never taken any money from you. These other men coming in, they want to compare credentials. Notice letter C, Paul's critique. Focusing on qualifications is silly. Focusing on qualifications is silly. You know what real leaders do? They don't talk about leading, they lead. You know what real church planners do? They don't walk around talking about planting churches. They plant churches. You know what real soul winners do? They don't just sit around and talk about soul winning. They go soul winning. You know what real Christians do? They don't just talk about going to church and reading their Bible and praying. They don't just talk in a game. They live it. They live it. And Paul is saying, you all want to get up and, and compare yourselves amongst yourselves. That's not wise. Paul's saying, you want to sit here, make me get down with the church that I planted and prove to them I'm an apostle. This all talking about qualifications and credentials, it's silly. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. And you all are making me do this so I'll have some sort of authority with the very church I started. Look at chapter 12, verse number 5. It says there, of such and one will I glory yet of myself. I will not glory. I will not glory. I'm not going to a glory in my accomplishments. I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Paul said, you want me to glory? I'm going to glory in the fact that I have been hurt for Christ. I'm going to glory in the thing that you all are embarrassed uh, uh, of me. Look at verse 6. For though I would desire to glory... I should not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear. Lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And I, uh, and lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelation, uh, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he saith unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect 
and weakness most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, some people have asked whether or not Paul was married. The Bible says here, Paul claimed he had a thorn in the flesh. So I'm going to go with that Paul was married. Amen? No, I'm just teasing. Um, my wife is not a thorn in my flesh. And uh, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Some of you just got a new nickname for your wife. You're my thorn in the flesh. Um, uh, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Paul's thorn in the flesh was probably, probably his poor vision. He couldn't see very well. He had to have other people write down his letters for him. Usually, um, um, he just couldn't see very well. And he asked God to heal him from that. And God said, I'm not going to do it. And he said, why not? He said, because if your body was whole, you would boast in who you are. I'm going to leave you with this thorn in the flesh, this personal infirmity, so that you will remain humble. So that you will remain humble. Let's quickly finish this up here. Number six, and lastly, Paul's reprimand of the remaining rebels. Paul's reprimand of the remaining rebels. Chapter 13, Paul turns to the crowd in the church that's still obstinate and still living um, uh, the wrong way and very cold toward uh, him and the truths that he's teaching. And he has two questions for them. The first question is this. Are you rebels even saved? Are you rebels even saved? I'm not going to take the time to read from one down through five, but look at verse five. It says there, examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves that uh, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? He's saying you all that are opposing me and still giving me a hard time, those of you that won't come around on this, you better examine your heart and see if you're even saved. The second thing here is, uh, the second question he asks is, do you reprobates care about truth? Do you reprobates care about truth? And again, I'm not going to read down from 6 through 8 because of time, but look at verse 8. It says, therefore, we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. What he was saying here is that you may not like what I'm saying, but truth is truth. Oprah Winfrey, I got one thing to tell you. There is no such thing as your truth. There's truth and there's error. There aren't variations of truth. All right? You don't get to have your version of truth, and I get to have my version of truth. Truth is truth. Two plus two equals four. Don't debate with me about it. It just is. And Jesus saves. He just does. Those who put their faith in Him humbly, He saves them. And so do not, uh, Paul was saying, do not battle with me about truth. And so tonight I would tell you that if you're not saved, get saved. And if you sit there and scoff at the Bible, don't scoff at truth. Amen? And so that's what the book of 2 Corinthians teaches us, is that we can be reconciled to God and we can be reconciled to others. Once we've been reconciled to God, it ought to bring out of us a desire to give and a desire to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Let's all stand and be dismissed this evening. All right, 817, not bad, not bad. We have bus visitation uh, Saturday at 10 a.m. Come help us pass out. Uh, flyers for Vacation Bible School if you can. And then uh, we'll, um, we have church on Sunday. Be in your place on Sunday. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. Brother John Sagru, could you close us in prayer?